Welcome back to Murder Under the Midnight Sun. Thank you for joining me. Apologies for the recent episodes that have been decidedly not Alaskan, but tonight I do have an Alaskan case for you guys. First, I wanted to say thank you, as usual, to all my patrons, especially my newest patron, Crystal. And if there's anyone else new that I've forgotten, my apologies. I also wanted to mention that I have designed some new stickers. I've posted pictures of them on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. And if you want one, just drop me an email or a message with your address and I'll send you one out. Now, before we get into this episode, I just wanted to mention a brief update that just happened in the Shelley Connolly case that I covered last episode. Her killer, Donald McQuaid, is currently awaiting trial in jail in Alaska. His bail was lowered to uh, 10000 in April, and apparently he recently requested to have his bail lowered again. And just a few days ago, his request was denied again. His request included his bail being lowered to 2500 and him being allowed to be on house arrest down in Oregon. His family members, again, argued on his behalf that he has stage 4 liver cancer and is at high risk of developing COVID but it looks like he will be staying behind bars for now. Now let's get into tonight's episode, the story of Charles Meech. Tonight's episode, I will be covering a case that I actually covered as one of the very few, very first episodes of this podcast. I think it was maybe episode three or four. And the recording quality at the time was horrible. And the episode ended up coming down and rather than just re-recording that same episode, I have completely rewritten it. This is a story of a mass murder that had a huge impact on Alaska's justice system, and is also one that my family has a personal connection to. So this is the story of Charles Meech and the bloodiest night in Anchorage history. My sources for this episode are various old uh, articles from the last Anchorage Daily News, or Alaska Dispatch, as it's now known, along with the book Murder at 40 Below by Tom Brennan. It's a compilation of multiple Alaskan true crime stories, and it's a pretty good read, so check it out. I also watched an episode of the ID show Ice Cold Killers about this case. It's season two, episode one, if you're interested in finding it. That was one of my favorite shows of theirs, and I'm sad that it seems to no longer be in production. So May 3rd, 1982, is considered to be the deadliest night in Anchorage history. Between two separate incidents, seven people died in the space of about an hour. The first incident happened at a bar, and it was pretty cut and dry with many witnesses. 26-year-old Donald Ray Pierce shot and killed 24-year-old Jody Cosin and 62-year-old Keith Herf before shooting himself in the head. Unfortunately, I had a really hard time finding much concrete information out about the shooting, but it seems as though Pierce and Cosin may have been in a relationship. But with both the victims and killer dead, there isn't much of a story to the shooting. Not so with the other four murders that took place at the same time. Those victims were Vern J. Sylvester II, age 19, Joseph Dean Kimmler, age 19, Rebecca Phillips, age 16, and Sabrina Imlach, who was one day shy of her 17th birthday. 
Vern J, a.k.a. VJ, was from Kenai. His best friend was Joseph Dean, who I saw referred to as Dean in the majority of the articles that I read, so that's how I will refer to him. VJ's girlfriend was Sabrina, and she had recently met his family in Kenai. Her best friend was Rebecca. Just recently, the two guys had decided to spend the summer living in a tent to save on rent. They had pitched their tent in Russian Jack Springs Park, which is a 300-acre large patch of woods and trails in Midtown Anchorage. In a bizarre coincidence, the very park where the four teens would be murdered was actually named after a murderer. Back in the early 1900s, a Russian man named Jacob Maruninko moved to Alaska and eventually set up camp on the land that would eventually become the park. He set up an illegal bootlegging operation, which ran throughout Prohibition, and he was a notoriously rough character. In the 1930s, Russian Jack, as he was called, got into a fight with a drinking buddy and ended up shooting the guy dead. At his trial, he claimed self-defense and ended up getting convicted of manslaughter rather than homicide and served about two years in a Seattle prison. After he got out, he ended up back in Alaska and was a well-known figure in the town. Eventually, the casual nickname of the land he lived on as Russian Jack's Land, or as Russian Jack Spring for the natural spring in the area, became an official name for the park. These days, there's also a Russian Jack elementary school, as well as a Russian Jack neighborhood. Most people that live there likely don't know the violent backstory of their neighborhood's namesake. But the history of the park gets even weirder. Eventually, the city of Anchorage purchased the land, and in the early 1950s, it was first used as a prison work farm. People arrested on minor crimes could live in the small buildings constructed there, and would work the land rather than be sent to jail. A lot of them, especially those that didn't have a home to return to, liked it there so much that they would commit more crimes just to go back to the farm. It was pretty self-sustaining and they grew the majority of their own food. The farm had the lowest security level possible. There was almost nothing preventing any of the prisoners from just walking off the farm when no one was looking. But surprisingly enough, it didn't happen very often. It was just that nice of a, a prison facility. The farm lasted for a few decades until it was closed in the 1970s. So what does one do with the land that was formerly a prison camp? Obviously, you turn it into a golf course, which still exists to this day. It's still a popular location for outdoor activities and also has a playground, a skate park, hiking trails, and a chalet. So this location must have seemed like a relatively safe place to pitch a tent. There are pretty much always people out on the trails, whether hiking or skiing, and it's just a short distance out of the park back to civilization. The two boys had been living there since the weather had turned warm and they'd had no problems. Neither of them were employed at the time, so sleeping rough until they got work was the perfect solution. The night of May 3rd, the teenagers were cruising around in Dean's car when they decided to swing by the park and grab the boys' jackets from the tent because the evening was getting chilly. As they were walking to the tent, 
Dean ran ahead to grab the jackets and noticed a tall, slim man standing by the tent. Dean asked the stranger why he was there by their tent, grabbed the jackets, and started to turn back towards his friends, and the man pulled out a gun and shot Dean in the head. Then he turned towards VJ and shot him in the head as well. The girls weren't far behind, and as they came running up to see what had happened, the man shot each of them in the face from a very short distance away. Shortly away on a trail, a group of four was walking by and heard the shots. They kind of thought it was fireworks at the time, and shortly they, thereafter they were passed by a tall, slim man who angrily told them to get out of there. A few minutes later, some passersby saw the four bodies laying on the ground, and police were contacted. During the investigation, multiple people came forward who had been at the park that day. A couple of them had seen a bicycle partially hidden in the park. It was notable because it was a very nice, basically brand new Schwinn bicycle with an extra large frame, obviously intended for a very tall person. Others had seen the tall, slim man lurking around the park, acting strangely. One man had noticed this tall stranger staring at him from behind a tree, and it scared him so much that he quickly left the area. One of the witnesses had looked at the bicycle quite closely because it was so nice, and he was able to recount the brand and a very specific description. Police visited the bicycle shop, which was the only place in town at the time where one could get a bike like the one described. The owner actually clearly remembered having sold that bicycle because the person who bought it had been a very strange guy. Not only the fact that he was six foot six tall, so he stuck out in the owner's mind, he just also acted very odd. He was able to find the receipt which had the owner's name and address. The purchaser was 34-year-old Charles Meech, and he lived at 2900 Providence Drive. Detectives quickly realized that was the address of API, or Anchorage Psychiatric Hospital. Law enforcement quickly found Meech and interviewed him in regards to the murders at the park, to which he absolutely denied involvement. But unnervingly, when they checked his name in law enforcement archives, they found out that he was already a convicted killer. Charles Meech was born in 1948 in Traverse City, Michigan. His mother had severe schizophrenia and spent the majority of his childhood in a psychiatric hospital. From the time he was a teenager, Meech had a criminal record, which grew longer with each passing year and included a variety of offenses, such as drug-related crimes, theft, trespassing, and many charges of assault. He had anger issues, which led to him acting out aggressively on many occasions. He had a hard time understanding and fitting in with society and understanding societal views. He had a really hard time figuring out how he was supposed to act in normal day-to-day -day situations. By the time he was an adult, he had already been arrested several times in different states, and his dad was fed up with him and had him confined for a short stint in a mental hospital. But it did not seem to help him at all, and when he got out, he left Michigan for good and made his way, sleeping rough, headed west before he ended up in Alaska. By 1973, Meech was in Anchorage and he had recently been rejected by the army. 
which could have been part of what led to the violence that was to come. I couldn't find an exact date for this first murder of his. Every article I read on it just said 1973. And what's even more shameful is that about 95% of the articles I read just referred to the victim as, quote, a mentally retarded Alaskan native. Actually, his name was Robert Johnson, and he was a 22-year-old mentally handicapped grocery bagger. A family friend told my mom years ago about how he had worked at a grocery store the year he graduated from high school in 73, and that he remembered his co-worker being murdered. Johnson's battered body was found in a popular downtown Anchorage Park called Earthquake Park. Listeners may remember me mentioning this in the James Dale Ritchie episode. Witnesses at the time described a very distinctive truck being in the area that night, which led law enforcement to questioning Charles Nietzsche about the crime. When he was questioned by Detective Ralph Christensen, he easily confessed to the murder. And he said he had beaten the much smaller Johnson to death because he hated the sound of his voice. And he compared his voice to that of Richard Nixon. Apparently, the two of them did not know each other before that night, but had met in a strip club and had apparently ended up drinking in the park together when Meech's aggressive side took over. Johnson had been beaten so badly that law enforcement at first, at first thought that he may have actually been hit by a vehicle. He was jailed and charged with first-degree murder. While awaiting trial, he spoke with several psychiatrists who determined that he had paranoid schizophrenia and was not sane at the time of his actions. At the time of his trial, Alaska did not have the ruling in place for guilty but mentally insane. They only had the option of having him ruled to be not guilty by mental defect. So even though they knew that he had obviously committed the crime, he would be placed in a mental health facility until doctors determined that he was fit to be released. There was no specific time period placed on his stay in a mental hospital, and he was sent to a Tascadero Mental Hospital in California to receive treatment. Meech was exceptionally smart with an IQ of 125, and he would later admit that he figured out what to tell the psychiatrist at the facility so that they would believe that his treatment was really working. So while it seemed like he was showing improvement, internally he still had the same violent thoughts. Although he can't have been too good at completely controlling it because he would admit to a doctor there that he still fantasized about rape and murder. And that really reminds me of Edmund Kemper. For those of you true crime nerds like myself, he was the same way, very intelligent, and basically figured out how to pass all of the psychiatric tests so that eventually the doctors in the place where he was started to think he, you know, might be able to be rehabilitated. Meech had originally been sent to Atascadero because it was a much more secure facility and was intended to be a long-term facility for violent offenders. But by 1980, the doctors there deemed him to be in recovery and he was sent back to Alaska Psychiatric Institute, which had a much lower level of security and which was not intended to be a long-term facility. 
they had the mission statement of helping people with psychiatric issues so that they could return back to society and back to their normal lives. The California facility told the Alaskan doctors that in order for Meech to remain in a state of recovery, he must be held in a secure facility and given regular doses of Thorazine and not to be given access to alcohol. But the doctors in Alaska completely fell for Meech's pretense at having been totally recovered. And many of them started to see him as just a normal guy that didn't even need to be in the psychiatric hospital. Over the next two years, Meech was slowly titrated off of Thorazine until he got to the point where he was allowed to choose when he needed to take Thorazine, which in my non-professional opinion, is a terrible idea for someone with schizophrenia since they are well known to stop taking medications when they feel better. But perhaps this wasn't as well known 40 plus years ago. It should be noted that the superintendent of API at the time, Superintendent Robeson, did not believe that Meech was truly in recovery. He had visited him previously in Atascadero, and when Meech ended up at API, Robeson requested that Meech be transferred into a higher security wing of the hospital, and that he should never be given any sort of provisional release. He actually believed that Meech was the most dangerous person in the hospital. Unfortunately, Robeson retired soon after that, and it seems as though Mitra's doctors either never heard the advice or chose to ignore it. And approximately six months prior to the Russian Jack Springs Park massacre, Meech was given day leave where he could check out the facility and get a job. And eventually his day leave was 10 hours. The plan was, was for him to eventually be released back into society after doing this for several months. During his day leave, he was able to get jobs at Sears department store and a small grocery store called Patrick's. Both stores knew that he lived in a mental health facility, but because of privacy laws, API was not allowed to tell Meech's employers that he was actually a murderer. They just believed he was someone that had issues with alcohol. At the time, two of my uncles were in their late teens, early 20s, and one of them worked with him at Sears, and the other worked with him at the grocery store. Both of them knew who he was. I mean, how could they not? He was a six foot six, very strange guy that rode a very memorable looking huge bicycle all around town. Both of my uncles were kind of young dudes at the time. They remember teasing him at work because he was just super weird. He had a tendency to say extremely odd things and he didn't really ever make friends at all. And while his employers knew that he lived in a mental health facility, his co-workers did not. Meech was also enrolled in classes at the University of Alaska Anchorage at the time and attended AA meetings. So he was definitely interacting with a lot of different people, many of whom would later remember him very well. During this time period, many women experienced odd and creepy encounters with him, which they would later tell news outlets after his 1982 arrest. And since Meech was now making money, he was able to save up and buy guns. One was a 38 caliber, which he called the consumer. And he also purchased one that was a 41 caliber, which he called Mitch Tuffy, 
but the consumer is the weapon with which he would later kill VJ, Dean, Sabrina, and Rebecca just a few months later. Obviously, there was enough security at API so he couldn't bring the weapons in, but he later told police that he buried them somewhere in the woods near API, and he had to pay someone else to buy bullets for him, since for some reason those were harder for a convicted killer to get than guns. So fast forward to May 3rd. Meech was having a bad day and decided to see what he could steal from VJ and Dean's tent, which he had seen in the park before. And that is what led to the confrontation that ended in four murders. After the murders, when Meech was again a person of interest, many other people had submitted tips about him, not just those who had seen him at the park that day. He was a very memorable character seen riding around town all the time. And when my uncles heard the description of the suspect, they both immediately knew who it was, though my mom isn't certain if either of them submitted a tip at the time. And when he was questioned, he refused to admit to anything other than the fact that he had been in the park that day. And as I mentioned, when he had confessed nine years earlier, it had been to Detective Ralph Christensen. So law enforcement brought Christensen in, who was by then a captain, to talk to Meech. Meech must have felt like he had some sort of connection to Christensen because he opened right up and admitted to the four murders. His explanation for the crimes was that his favorite shirt had been stolen from him and he was pissed off. His freedom allowed him to go get drunk at a bar. He said he remembered seeing a tent in the park and he thought there might be cassette tapes in there that he wanted to steal. So basically four young people had lost their lives over cassette tapes and a psychiatric institute completely dropping the ball and allowing this violent man the freedom to kill again. So of course when the public found out the backstory on the man arrested for the murders, there was intense outrage from everyone. People, people were rightfully outraged that a man who had committed a heinous murder had been allowed day release just nine years later, and he was actually weeks shy of being set completely free in the community in which his first murder had occurred. In fact, the same law that had allowed him to commit this quadruple murder was still in effect. But within a week of the murders, the law came under review, and just a month later it was changed. The revision allowed for the addition of a verdict of guilty but mentally ill, verdict would put a defendant in a mental hospital until they were deemed legally sane, and at that point they would serve the remainder of their sentence in prison. But because the new revision was not enacted prior to the quadruple murder, Nietzsche attempted to again use the same defense he had used for the 1973 murder, not guilty by reason of insanity. However, this time he was convicted on four counts of first-degree murder, for which he received four sentences of life without the option for parole, which was for all intents and purposes a 396-year prison sentence, which was the longest sentence given in Alaskan history up to that point. Meech died in prison in 2004 at the age of 56 of natural causes. That bloody night in 1982 left a dark shadow over the town one that lingered for years, if not decades afterward. So many people were affected by this senseless act of violence 
from the victim's families to those that had known Meech and interacted with him, never knowing what he was capable of. My mother, who was only a few years older than the teenagers when they were murdered, told me that for decades after this crime, every time she had to drive, she had to drive near Russian Jack Springs Park, she would get a haunted feeling just thinking of those poor teenagers whose lives were abruptly cut short on a May evening at the park. Thanks for listening to this episode. Such a sad story. I couldn't help but think about who those teenagers may have grown up to be. They would all just be in their 50s now, maybe having grandkids and maybe headed towards enjoying retirement. I'm trying to hold myself to a more strict recording schedule, so the next episode will be out within two weeks or less. And remember, if you want stickers, feel free to contact me. Sorry for the horrible narration this episode. I'm just like stumbling over my words today. But thank you. See you next time.